Today's show is brought to you by Laser Away. Adulthood Made Easy listeners can save up to 75% on laser services at Laser Away. Go to laserawaycom AME now to schedule your free consultation. This episode is also brought to you by The Bachelorette. JoJo is back as the new Bachelorette. She's starting a new love story, her way, going from Ben to 26 new men, all hoping to be the one. The Bachelorette premieres at a special time Monday, May 23rd, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central on ABC. Adulthood Made Easy, a podcast from Real Simple Magazine that will not only help you navigate real life, but win at real life. I'm your host, Sam Zabel. And this week, we are wrapping up our side hustle series. I'm sad to see it go because it has been so fun to hear about the passion projects from so many creative people, but I know those stories will keep coming. Seriously, keep keep tweeting cool people at me because I love hearing about them. And as a finale, I invited someone to join me in the studio who really understands the balance of pursuing your passion and holding down, quote, a real job. And I'm going to read you a really quick passage from an essay she wrote. Art does not need your full-time attention. Art does not demand that you starve in order to afford paint and canvas and brushes or knitting needles and yarn or a chainsaw for your badass ice sculptures or whatever your tools may be for your particular medium. There is more nobility in hard work than in pure luck, though every artist can use a bit of that. You'll make better art after a day at the office than you will after a lifetime in an ivory tower. Real artists have day jobs and night jobs and afternoon jobs. Real artists make things other than art, and then they make time to make art because art is screaming to get out from inside them, screaming or begging or gently whispering. Now go make your art. So that was kind of an excerpt from Sarah Benincasa's new book, Real Artists Have Day Jobs and Other Awesome Things They Don't Teach You in School. And it's great, right? Oh, thank you. And that's Sarah. Sarah Benincasa is a comedian and author of several books, including Agora Fabulous, Dispatches from My Bedroom, a book based on her critically acclaimed solo show about panic attacks and agoraphobia. She's also adapting that as a TV pilot. She was born and raised in New Jersey and graduated from Warren Wilson College and Columbia University Teachers College and currently lives in Los Angeles, California, which is where she is joining us from today. Hi, Sarah. Hi, it's so good to be here. I'm just hanging out with my tea in uh, in LA and I'm enjoying myself very much. I'm very jealous because it's pouring rain here. So I would love to be at home with, with some tea right now. <laughs> it is a beautiful thing. And here in Los Angeles, we're experiencing an early dose of what we call out here June gloom, okay. which is that it's overcast and people do not know how to handle it. Like earthquakes are nothing to these people, but <laughs> June gloom is... Really sets, them on, really sets them on the wrong path. Oh, absolutely. Anyway, Sarah, so I read, so obviously that is kind of the title essay from your book, Real Artists Have Day Jobs. And I wanted to bring you on the show because this book landed on my desk. And this whole side hustle series has been about balancing these passion projects at night and doing your real work during the day. But, you know, as soon as I read this essay, I was like, maybe I've been going about this series all wrong. Like maybe... It shouldn't, I shouldn't be referring to these as side hustles. Maybe it's just a diff, you know, maybe that's your main hustle and your side hustle is your job. So I'm curious, what do you think about the term that I've been using, which is like side hustle or passion project for all these art pursuits? 
I think that side hustle is a useful term because it's something that's kind of part of the lingua franca for our generation, right? Mm -hmm. We're so used to having our main job or a bunch of different jobs to make ends meet. And so many of us work from home now. So many of us are freelance contractors now. And so the lines are blurred for us these days as to what constitutes the main gig and the side gig. Mm -hmm. I think it's totally useful and I think it's, it's fine to use that term, but if you are someone who feels underserved <laughs> by that term, or if you are someone who feels like an artist and you're embarrassed or, or, or you just love your art form, whatever it may be, quilting or woodworking or writing or dancing or acting, and, and you love it so much and you feel like that's who you are inside yourself, I think it's fine to say, yeah, I'm a painter on the side. I am a CEO of a marketing company. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Your side hustle can be that you're a CEO. That's great. And you yeah. kind of, you're kind of the queen of understanding that there's a ton of different jobs. You have this whole thing about you were a real writer when you were an assistant at a law firm, when you were a teacher, when you worked at a fancy pet boutique. Um, you have all these different jobs. So, so what did you learn from your time you know, balancing your writing and your comedy with all of these, you know, quote unquote, real jobs or day jobs? I learned that if you love your coworkers, you can get through almost anything. That's great I definitely, advice. Yeah. I mean, I learned that if you are in an environment at work that feels like a family or feels like a team that cares about each other, it almost doesn't matter what the work is. Almost. Mm-hmm. I also learned that if you can't derive any meaning from your work at all, then it's certainly not worth it. I mean, and meaning can come not just from the work itself, but can come from what the work pays for. So if, if I, you know, back, back when I was a graduate student and I was student teaching during the day at the Bronx High School of Science, and then I was going to graduate class at night at Columbia, and then on the weekends I was working at this fancy pet pet accoutrement boutique <laughs> to, to make some money. Um, I, I found meaning in all of those different things because all of those different things helped me. And, and also I was doing comedy at night. It was bananas, but, um, working at the fancy pet boutique meant something to me because it gave me some more autonomy. It brought in some more money and it enabled me to do the fun stuff that I wanted to do. And it enabled, it helped me pay the bills. And so if, if you can find some meaning in your work, that's really important. I also liked the people who ran the store and I liked the, the wacky customers too. Mm -hmm. So that was cool. It wasn't my life's calling, but I, I have to say that one of my favorite jobs of all time, probably besides being a writer and comedian, my second favorite job was working at a coffee bar inside a gym in New Jersey. Oh, cool. When that, I dropped that's out. so fun. <laughs> I dropped out of college, and so I would be serving these, like, full-fat lattes to meatheads and cardiac patients who came in for cardiac rehab, and I didn't really realize what was going on until I was like, I might be killing these people, but I'm also not allowed to say anything to them about their choices. It was great. <laughs> That's um, so Yeah, it was fun. amazing. It was amazing. You've had such, I mean, you've had such diverse experiences, which I love. And from this essay, something I didn't read, but what I love also, what really stuck out to me was you said, the biggest myth we are fed as artists is that we need to sustain ourselves solely on our art. And I think that that is something that you hear a lot is that, you know, if you're an artist, the only place you can derive meaning from 
is your actual art. And, you know, there is no meaning in the office job. Like, that's not where you're creatively fulfilled. But it seems like you're saying you can find a lot of creative fulfillment at these jobs, and they also can can make your art even better. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. I mean, let's throw out the idea, the notion, which is outdated and ridiculous, that the starving artist is something to which we must aspire. The starving artist notion is a myth that I think uh, people with lots of money sell us on so that we decide, oh, oh yes, this pose is something I'm going to take on. Somehow my art has more meaning because I cannot afford to buy ramen and my kids can't wear clothes. Like, come on. It's <laughs> ridiculous. There is nothing at all that is wrong or shameful or bad or not completely honorable and exciting about having a 401k from your office job. <laughs> it's super exciting. Having a 401k is very exciting. Having a 401k is legit. I used to work at a radio, I used to work at Sirius XM many years ago, and that was the first time I had a 401k. And now I have my uh, personal wealth manager, which is hilarious because I don't make him that much wealth, but uh, nor do I have that much wealth. But, you know, having rolled it over, you're like, I just, if you're an artist and you don't know what a Roth IRA is, learn about that. You know, it's there's nothing cute or adorable about living in this world where you're like, I just, I can't make ends meet, but ultimately it's just all about my art. No, it's not. You need to take care of yourself. You need to, you need to know where the low income dental clinic is in your town and you need to go there sometimes and figure out how to get a cleaning if they do cleanings or just extractions. Like you need to take care of your body. You need to take care of your mind. You need to take care of your soul. There's nothing uh, adorable about embracing poverty as a pose. I would warrant, uh, or I would guess, I would hazard a guess that most people who are born into poverty or grow up in poverty don't think of it as some adorable life choice. Right. And nor should any artist. It's not about being wealthy. It's about taking care of yourself and taking care of the people who depend on you and doing your art. And but something else you said was that you you'll do better art after a day spent at the office, which which to me, I'm like after a day at the office, I'm like ready to go to bed. <laughs> like I'm like, I sure. can't keep my eyes open. So I that I mean, that stuck out to me because I think people think, you know, they're they're draining all their energy. They're using up all their creative energy, whatever it may be with a nine to five job. But it seems like you have a you have a different thought. Yeah, I mean the full the the full sentence is something like you'll do better work after a day at the office than a lifetime in an ivory tower. Mm-hmm. An ivory tower, of course, is a you generally regarded as a we couldn't we talk about academia when we talk about the ivory tower. But I'm also talking about the idea of this this notion that if you are shut up in some beautiful romantic garret or tower a la Rapunzel and you just have all the time in the world to make your art, that your art is going to be amazing. And my point is that if you're not engaged with the real world, your art is going to be very out of touch and your art Mm -hmm. is not going to be grounded in reality. And I think reality is a great place for art to be grounded. And so if you are someone who is working a job that drains you. I know that sucks. I've had those jobs. I get it. But the fact that you are working hard and that you are providing for yourself and perhaps for others 
is a really good thing. And your art will have more authenticity than if you were just sort of lounging about being fed bonbons all day. I've never known what a bonbon is. People say that all the time. And I'm always like, I, I can't picture what that is in my head. But I know the general idea of what you're saying. But I just thought about there that. Was, there was a brand <laughs> of ice cream called bonbons. That was okay. Really good. It was like, well, ice cream snacks are so good. Oh man, I miss them now. Um, <laughs> but you can afford bonbons if you if you work. And and the office is just a metaphor for what you might call a day job. So in in actuality, like if we're taking it literally, sure, you might be tired after a day at the office. I was exhausted after days of teaching students in a high school setting. But what I'm saying is that to me, your work has more worth if you know that you've earned it. It's like when I talk to parents who have kids, some of them are full-time writers. And I go, when do you find time to write? You have an infant and a toddler. And they say, well, when the kid, kids are asleep. And I say, well, what if you don't feel like writing? And they go, there is no, I don't feel like writing. This is how I make my livelihood. That's when I write. And so they're engaged with the hard work of, of raising human beings. Yeah, right. <laughs> And the ultimate day job, right? And night job. Oh, totally. It's 24 seven job. And so they're writing. I mean, these people are some of the best writers I know. And their writing is, it's amazing to me that I know that they're doing this incredible work with so little time in which to do it, but there's an urgency there and they execute, they do it. Did you know that the average woman will spend over $10,000 on razors and 72 days shaving in her lifetime? Are you tired of spending all this time and money on what is also ranked as the most hated beauty ritual? I am too. Good thing our friends at Laser Away have us and our bodies covered. As the nation's top laser hair removal and aesthetic experts, LaserAway offers the most advanced cutting-edge technology to offer dramatic permanent results in just a few treatments. LaserAway's treatments are non-invasive, fast, permanent, and can treat all skin tones, leaving you hair-free, care-free, and ready for that last-minute date or beach getaway. Shave time, not your legs. Get up to 75% off laser services and schedule your free consultation today by going to laserway.com slash A-M-E. That's laserway.com slash A-M-E. So this is why I figured you'd be the perfect person to kind of be the finale for this series because I, you know, all of this is is exactly what you said. We always hear, you know, you need to give give yourself to your, you know, quit your job and pursue your passions 24-7. And, and the reality is that is not the reality for everyone. Um, but the other reason I wanted to have you on is because one of your artistic pursuits is being a comedian, which is someone we haven't gotten to talk to yet on this little side hustle series. And I would love to hear a little bit about, you know, your, I'm sure it's a very long winding path, but the abbreviated path you took to comedy, because I know you went to school to be a teacher and, and, and how you kind of got to be a comedian and, and what took you there? Well, I did the AmeriCorps program after I uh, failed half of my, what was supposed to be my super senior semester in college. It took me six years to finish undergrad. And I did the AmeriCorps program without a college degree, uh, which should have been my first clue that maybe the school that was hiring me didn't quite know what it was doing. And I taught I taught high school for a year. And during that time, I got my degree. I got into Columbia University Teachers College. I moved to New York from the Southwest to do that. 
And I was unhappy. And the school was great. And I loved my students at Bronx Science. I loved my cooperating teacher. It was brilliant school. And I thought, what's wrong with me? Why am I not happy? And a woman in my class, uh, her name was Caroline Wells, said to me in my night class, said to me, I think that you should do comedy. And I said, what? And she said, I think you'd be happier doing comedy. And she said, you seem, you know, you're, I think I cried in class that day, not in front of the students, but at, with my fellow students at night at Columbia. I was like, I just don't know if I'm supposed to be here. And Caroline said, well, listen, I just quit my job at Comedy Central. I was an assistant in the talent department for years. And I know a lot of comedians. And I think you're funny. And I think you would like doing stand up. And I was like, what do I have to put on shoulder pads and go to a chuckle <laughs> hut? What the hell does that mean? And so she took me downtown to Rafifi, where I saw, which was a, a club that used to exist, where I saw a show called The Oh Hello Show, which was uh, had these guys named Nick Kroll and John Mulaney in it pretending oh. to be Men. Just just a couple of random guys. <laughs> right. And I was like, this was like 2006. And I was like, what is happening? And she's like, that's John. He was an intern at, at UCB. And now he's a comedian. He's going to be really big. And, and that's yeah. Nick. And he's going to be really big, too. And I was like, I can tell. And I said, I, I didn't know this was co- – that's not stand-up. What is this? Is it sketch? She was like, I don't know. It's, it's, they call it alternative comedy. And I was like, what? So I started hanging out there, and the bartender was was someone who's now my friend, David Crabb, who's a wonderful author and storyteller uh, with The Moth. He travels around the world with The Moth. Oh, cool. And he's definitely someone who knows the ways of of which of, of that which we are speaking of, certainly. But at the time, I think I was just like trying to make out with somebody and probably didn't talk to him that much. And, um, <laughs> so I would go to these shows. I would go to a show called Invite Them Up and I would go, I would see Eugene Merman and I would see Bobby Tisdale. And I wow. remember seeing Patton Oswalt, who I adore, who wrote the the quote on the front of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's somebody who personally I, I have such high regard for and admire so much. And uh, I I didn't talk to him in 2006. Right. <laughs> I think I think he was there doing. I think the first time I saw him, he dropped in after he he did this movie called Failure to Launch. Oh, I remember <laughs> that movie with Sarah <laughs> Jessica Parker and all that stuff. SJP and the McCons. And yes. she's like Matthew McConaughey. Let's get you out of the house. Your parents are so upset. And Patton's in it like somewhere. And I guess he was there that night doing a show. And um, he was like, uh, I have passes to the after party. I don't want to go. Here they are. And I, one of those passes like landed on my cocktail table and I didn't take it. But I remember looking at it and going, wow, they let you, you get to go to parties. What this, he's a comedian, but he's an actor too. Like I was so blown away and uh, it just seemed like such a big deal to me. And it was a big deal. I think he would probably laugh about that now. But but so you, story, so actually. you, the <laughs> first, the first time that you were even given the inkling about comedy, like you weren't someone who was doing like auditioning for the talent show and telling jokes in high school. Like oh, this yeah. was because you're a funny person, but and you didn't go to like some kind of acting school. Like you just started going to these comedy shows, and suddenly, yeah, there I it was. At, I went to Emerson College first. I went to a bunch of colleges, and mm-hmm. one of them was Emerson, and. I love that school. I still love that school. And I did stand up once because somebody asked me to because they thought I was funny. And I remember I did what's called blowing the light, which is that I just went right past the light to the point where like they light you at the end of your set and I ignored it. I didn't see it or I don't know, to the point where they had to wave their arms in front of me to get <laughs> me off stage. It was pretty awkward, but funny. And I did a, I, I did, I think I studied at Emerson one semester with my, one of my mentors there, John Anderson. I studied like one person shows 
But I didn't. And so I did. I just read. I did a reading where I sat on stage and read stuff while I wore a tutu. <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't. I wasn't a stand. I wasn't a comedian. Like I just I remember looking up to um, my friend Dan Levy, who's a, a wonderful stand up comedian and writer and producer. And he was always so good at stand up. And I remember being like, wow, he's so talented. I wonder what that's like. But I never thought it was for me ever. But then when did like when was your first show? Like when did you do your first show? My first show was was not long after my first show. Well, it wasn't long after Caroline told me I should be a comedian. I started going to shows and then I decided to enroll in a class at the pit with Kevin Allison, my teacher, who is from one of my favorite comedy groups, which is called The State. Mm-hmm. And I guess I some girl in my class said, hey, I heard you're into comedy. And I had been for like two months. I was like, sure. And I hadn't done anything, not even an open mic yet. And she said, will you perform at this United Nations International Women's Month at the Rockefeller House, which is an international student residence. And so she said, you know, we're doing UN sponsored by the UN and we're doing we're doing a women's comedy night. And I was like, okay. And you'd been doing this for like two months at the time. I hadn't even done a open mic. I had just gone to shows and was watching a lot of stand up on my own and I was taking a sketch comedy writing class. And I just said okay and then they paid me. It was 15 minutes and I opened for two comedians who were vastly <laughs> better uh, and well seasoned, you know, more seasoned than I. And they paid me $40 and I thought that that meant that every time a comedian did comedy you got paid. And I was like this is great. <laughs> I didn't I didn't know that Nick and John were making money for Oh, yeah, <laughs> I was like, this is awesome. And uh, that's not actually the case. But <laughs> you don't make money every time. But I, I was hooked. I loved it. And I killed and I killed not because I was good, but because I did all jokes about being an international graduate student in mm-hmm. New York City. <laughs> I also thought that you had to write a new set every time you went up. So I thought comedians wrote new sets. So you just, you were, everything at that point was a real learning experience for you because, yeah. we don't, you know, I always try to figure out like for people who are listening, who are, who are like, I really want to be in comedy, you know, help them find a path. But it sounds like there isn't always like a given set of steps to get there. It's just a matter of putting yourself out there, immersing yourself in the community and giving it a go. Yeah. I would recommend improv training to anybody. If you can go to if you can get to New York, Chicago, or Los Angeles, these are not the only places in the world that do improv training, but go in and do improv. I say this as someone who has never done improv because I find it terrifying, but what I have yeah, noticed- terrifying. I agree. It's, it's terrifying. It's also watching bad improv is like opening a vein. It's the worst. <laughs> but the thing is, improv is, except when it's done by masters of the form, improv is a tool and it is an extraordinary one. And I have noticed that the- most of, not all, but most of the comedic actors and stand-ups that I adore the most and I'm so impressed by uh, have some kind of improv training. They at least took one class. And so I do think it's a really valuable thing for any performer or for anybody who just wants to be light on their feet when they're making a presentation at work. Yeah. And then you did these awesome, you did these awesome video blogs, like YouTube series, where you kind of parodied Sarah Palin. And you put on the glasses and did the Alaskan accent and kind of 
took on her persona as she was going through this election. So that was obviously also a really big part of your comedy brand. And, it, you know, I've watched them and they're hilarious. And <laughs> I wish I'd watched them at the time because I'm like trying to remember because the election right now is so nutty. I'm like, I can't even remember that election. It was um, so much fun. And we snookered the Huffington Post to paying us 15 grand to do them, which is hilarious because they don't pay anybody anything because they're garbage. But I, it was so much fun and I will forever be grateful to the people at the now defunct comedy venture of the Huffington Post. <laughs> so, th- so that was something they came to you and asked for you to do or you pitched it to them? They came to us. My comedy partner, Diana Sayas and I were just doing them for fun because she announced and this was like months before SNL came on for the year. And so we had this nice opening to just get to be silly and do something without being compared to, you know, Tina Fey, who did like the awesome and definitive Sarah Palin impression that I love so much. Right. But we we had a chance to just nobody was doing nobody knew who the hell she was. So they announced, I think, on like Labor Day weekend. And we just took a camera. I was working freelancing for MTV News at the time. So we had a camera. And we just started goofing off and then just put it up on YouTube and had no idea that it would go viral. And it did. And so after we had a certain number of these, yeah, HuffPo came to us and was like, hey, can we pay you a bunch of money to do these? And I was like, that's hilarious. Yes. (laughs) Anytime someone says, can we pay you a bunch of money? The answer is 100% yes. (laughs) I was like, that's hysterical. It's 2008 and your website is going to fail, but it's a really funny website. Not HuffPo, but it was 236.com, which was really funny. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you know, uh, it was great. So it was great to be a part of that. And somehow, you know, they had money, which was crazy. And they were funny, and they were great to us. And so we got to just churn them out and make them for them and, and make money, which was bizarre. It went viral, and I have to say that that was like, people talk about a big break, and I don't think any career in the arts Usually it's not one big break. Usually it's a series of of medium breaks, tiny, Mm -hmm. big, medium. And you're only as good as your last project is generally what happens. Um, But that for me as a 27-year-old, you know, getting that, getting paid to do comedy in that way and with such a platform and, and then getting to do press and getting to be on TV for it and all kinds of stuff, that really, that definitely changed my life. And how important do you think it is to have as you're building that type of a comedy brand to be have some sort of not necessarily always viral but have some sort of important funny unique presence on the internet like how important do you think the internet is as a tool specifically for comedians as opposed to making sure you're doing a lot of stand up and taking classes like how do you balance those two because it would seem that now every you know a funny twitter presence can get you a ton of attention so what are your thoughts on that I think it's absolutely vital. I think it's integral to being a comedian today. I think Mm -hmm. that if you have, you know, if you have built a career in the clubs and in colleges and that's what you want to do, that's fantastic and admirable. Keep doing that. Mm -hmm. If you want to keep doing it forever and ever, it's a good idea to have an internet presence. And it's a good idea to have someone, you know, uh, shoot your routine. And, and and do a good job, not a crappy job, and put it up and have that available. Most comedians don't just want to do stand-up. Most comedians want to do stand-up as a way to get a hosting gig on a show mm-hmm. and eventually become, you know, a director, an executive producer, a writer, creator, a la Judd Apatow, who's so incredible. Mm-hmm. And that's what most comedians want to do. And in fact, most comedians 
who do that stuff are then better able to do their stand-up because they have a bigger name and more places will book them, more people have heard of them. And so you don't have to be some kind of superstar YouTuber. Um, Mm -hmm. You don't have to be – I have friends who are superstar YouTubers and they're not necessarily in it to do stand-up. But, uh, you know, you – Yes, you have to pound the pavement and yes, you have to do the shows and yes, you have to do your work to become a great stand-up. I'm not a great stand-up. I'm an okay stand-up naturally. I'm like my dad is at golf, really good weekend (laughs) golfer, impressive to his business buddies, but he's not going to be on the, you know, senior PGA tour ever. And that's, you know, uh, so know your strengths and lean into what you're good at. For me, that's writing. But yeah, I mean, you, you gotta, you, and use Twitter. I use Twitter as my gym. Twitter is a place where I can work out jokes and concepts. It's also a place where I can network and engage with people. I am a very ADD person who has an overloaded brain, and Twitter is a place where I can just barf stuff out so that I can get on to doing my other writing. And I, I enjoy it. I enjoy Twitter. I'm going to quit Facebook at some point, but it's, you know, it's brought me friendships and, and good things as well. So yeah, have that presence if only to, if only to work out jokes and see how they yeah, land. It's, it's, you, it's so much better than getting up on stage and realizing that things are not working, that you can just kind of tell by the retweets instead. Oh yeah. But then you can take one of those 140 character jokes that gets a million retweets and go on stage and say it to dead air. And people oh, can, like a pin drop, you know, that you have to work different muscles. You're, mm-hmm. you're on your writing muscle is going to be a little different than your performance muscle and, you know, different venues require different things. So I would also say respect the platform. If you're going to do a lot of really funny content on Snapchat versus YouTube versus Vine versus Twitter versus Facebook versus Instagram, understand that these are all different places and you need to uh, adjust to the communities there and learn the rules of the road. On The Bachelor, Ben told JoJo he loved her, but her fairy tale ending crashed straight to the ground when he said he loved someone else more and sent her away with a broken heart. It was the most dramatic Bachelor finale ever. Starting on ABC Monday, May 23rd, JoJo is back as the new Bachelorette. The stunning fan favorite from Texas is leaving her heartbreak behind, going from Ben to 26 new men, all hoping to be the one to make her happily ever after finally come true. Will JoJo finally get the happy ending she's always wanted? The surprises start night one as the guys try to grab her attention right out of the limo to get that coveted first impression rose. A new epic journey of romance and drama is about to begin. The Bachelorette premieres at a special time, Monday, May 23rd, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central on ABC. What do you label yourself as? Are you a writer first? Are you a comedian first? How do you kind of categorize yourself? Because I gave a little bio for you in the beginning, but I'm curious, you know, how you title yourself with all these different creative pursuits. I'm a writer. I'm a comedian. I'm a mental health advocate. Um, I speak in colleges a lot about uh, about dealing with mental illness. I guess I do a lot of things. What's easiest for me is to say I am an author and a comedian mm-hmm. and people can kind of grasp those two things, uh, which is great because I don't think I can, but you know, I've been adapting three out of four of my books for TV or film. And so I, I sort of hesitantly, I'm like, do I add screenwriter? I don't know. But I say, I say author and comedian. Mm-hmm. And at, was there an experience that you had during writing or during comedy time that led to you, this philosophy that we talked about in the beginning that, you know, you don't have to start for your work and that, 
having a real office job is equally as important and fulfilling? Was there a moment that you kind of came up with that? You know, I think that it's something I came to over time. I was always encouraged to work hard. My parents are very successful at what they do. My mother was the first person in her family to go to college. She was the first person to get a master's degree in her family. She's a school librarian in in New Jersey, and she's really great at what she does. My dad is in the business world, and he's really great at what he does. I think he's the first in his family to get a master's degree, maybe. I'm not sure. But um, so they worked really hard, and they didn't come from privilege. My dad's family was middle class. My mom grew up on food stamps. And so I grew up with a degree of privilege that they didn't have, which is that I was reasonably comfortable, certainly my mom, I was comfortable day to day knowing where my meal was going to come from. I guess hard work was always just, it was just what you did. The idea of, you know, of course you need to balance it. You need to relax too. You don't work yourself into the, into an early grave, but there was never anything, it never even occurred to me, I think until I got to like a private liberal arts college that anybody in the world would think it was cool to go, yeah, I'm just really spending time on my art. Like, I just really don't have time to like, I just, I would never do an advertising major because it's like, that's not real art. That's what? What's wrong with you? Are you bananas? <laughs> so you who never, so you, you were never someone who was like writing full time. Like there was never a time in your life where you were just writing or just working on comedy. No, I mean, now, now I am, which yeah. is great. But um, no, I mean, I always, I always worked and, you know, I also, I always say this too. I also had help, you know, I was working, but my parents helped me out when I was in the AmeriCorps program. My parents, I was making 10 grand a year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my, my parents paid for me to go to the shrink and they, they paid for my groceries. Like that's just one example. I mean, they've helped me out so much over the years. So I, I can neither pretend to be a trust fund kid, which is fine if you are. And I can't pretend to be an impoverished kid, which is fine if you are. I've taken advantage of, of the privilege that has been accorded me for a whole variety of reasons. And I think that you can acknowledge your privilege and still work your ass off. I look at it as perhaps even more of a reason to do so. I guess I've always tried to prove myself because I know that my parents had it way harder than I did growing up. My mom, especially. So it was weird to me the first time I heard somebody talk disparagingly about studying business or, or, you know, working a construction job. Like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> people in my, my family at work, I mean, there are people in my family who work from blue collar on up to lily white collar. And hard work is a, is a great thing. It's something to aspire to. Totally. And when did you make the switch? When did you know you could kind of pursue just writing and comedy full time? I think in 2012. So as we're recording this, it is 2016. And yes. for anyone uh, who finds this in a time capsule later. <laughs> in the future. Uh, it was 2012 when my first book came out, Agora Fabulous Dispatches from My Bedroom. That was a memoir. And so in 2012, the book came out. I also optioned it for TV. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, so that's when it started. But I still, I mean, I'm always looking for other stuff. I was just tweeting today about how I would love to consult on an ad campaign for a liquor company because I have some friends in comedy who do that. Like a lot of us do stuff. You know, if you look at our bio, it's like she's a writer and comedian. She's published all these books and she lives in Los Angeles in a bungalow. But like if you dig deep, she also has $30,000 in student loan debt and credit card debt from living in her 20s in New York. 
And also she loves consulting on ad and marketing campaigns because it pays bank. (laughs) Absolute vodka. Holler at me. Well, Sarah, obviously you have me laughing all morning, which is great because I had such a crazy morning with rain and not wanting to get out of bed and all this stuff. So I feel really revitalized by this conversation and I hope our listeners do too. And obviously this is a great book for our demographic. I don't know who you were writing for when you wrote it, but I just feel like everyone in their 20s could use this advice that it's totally okay to work in corporate America and love it and also be a champion knitter or painter at home. Absolutely. I mean, I am 35 now. And so I guess I wrote it I wrote it because, you know, I wrote it for anybody over the age of 18 who feels like they've missed a step or that they're missing out in some way and wants Mm -hmm. to feel okay about themselves and their choices. But I guess when I think about it, I was really writing to my younger self um, and maybe even to my present day self, too. So, yeah, I mean, if, if folks in their 20s get into it and love it and derive meaning from it and comfort, that is awesome. Yes, I think they will. And with graduation coming up, I think this is, in my personal opinion, a great graduation gift for all of the grads in your life who are about to get into the real world and be like, what is happening? I agree. (laughs) What is all of this? Anyway, Sarah, (laughs) I thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciated the chance to talk to you. Um, I admire your comedy. I admire your writing. And I, I hope that everything goes incredibly well for you with all of your new TV shows and things in the works. Thank you so much. And congratulations on hosting this really cool, like, big deal podcast. That's awesome. (laughs) Thank you so much. This was so fun to talk to you. I really appreciate it. Have a great, enjoy the June gloom or avoid the June gloom (laughs) and uh, have have a really good rest of your day. Cool. Thank you so much. I appreciate this a lot. That was really fun. Yeah, that was great. You're so funny. Oh, thank you. Which I guess is good because you're a a comedian. So it's probably good for me to think you're funny, huh? That was Sarah Benincasa, and you can get her book, Real Artists Have Day Jobs, wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Adulthood Made Easy. If you have questions or topics you'd like me to cover in the future, just tweet them to me at Samzabel, and I'll add them to my list. I'd like to thank our editor, Tim Einenkel, and our producer, Kristen Meinzer. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to review and subscribe in iTunes. I'm Sam Zabel, and I'll see you next time.